This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. At Baxter, we understand that patients with acute kidney injury require therapy options different from those of patients with chronic kidney disease. That's why every piece of the PrismaFlex system has been designed with safety and flexibility in mind. From the highly accurate fluid management to the automated functionality to the ease in switching between CRRT therapies. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Infield. Today, I will be speaking with Colin K. Grissom, MD, FCCM, and Matthew W. Simler, MD, about fluid management in the critically ill. Dr. Grissom spoke on achieving fluid balance at the 47th Critical Care Congress in San Antonio, Texas. During this session, he discussed the study by Simler et al., Balanced Crystalloids versus Saline in Critically Ill Adults, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, March 2018. Dr. Grissom works as an attending physician at Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. And Dr. Simler works as an attending physician at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. I want to thank you guys both for joining us on the iCritical Care podcast. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share, Dr. Grissom? No disclosures on my part. And Dr. Simler, do you have any disclosures you need to share with the audience? I have no disclosures. Dr. Grissom, you spoke at the 47th Annual Critical Care Congress on the topic of achieving fluid balance. Why, in your mind, do you feel that achieving fluid balance is important for our patients in the ICU? Well, it's a common problem that we encounter in the intensive care unit. It starts with choice of IV fluid or colloid to use for resuscitation. And then what's the goal of resuscitation? What are the endpoints for resuscitation? And what does the evidence show about uh, how much fluid or colloid you should give a particular patient? And then uh, finally, once they're out of shock, how do you approach their fluid management? I think these are all common problems in the ICU every day that we encounter with a lot of patients with sepsis as well as with other patients with shock of other causes. And in that talk, you gave a pretty nice discussion on the theoretical difference on how the body handles different fluid administrations. Do you think you could briefly summarize that for the listeners to sort of drive part of our conversation? Yeah, I think the major categories of fluids that can be used for resuscitation can be put into crystalloids. And uh, we use isotonic crystalloids, meaning normal saline or lactate ringers or other balanced salt solutions for resuscitation. We can use colloids uh, or we can use synthetic colloids. So uh, a common colloid is albumin. A common synthetic colloid would be head of starch. And there are differences in the way those fluids expand intravascular volume. For one liter of isotonic crystalloid, it's about a third of it that stays in the intravascular space to expand circulating uh, fluid volume, whereas with colloids, you get more intravascular volume expansion for the amount of colloids infused, and same with synthetic colloids, and finally, there's hypertonic saline that has the same effect, and it's as far as the evidence for each of these, isotonic fluids are better or there's no advantage to using albumin over uh, isotonic fluids. And then as far as comparison with synthetic colloids, they have been shown to be harmful in patients with sepsis, causing increased acute kidney injury, renal replacement therapy, and mortality. And then the hypertonic saline studies haven't yet shown a clear benefit over isotonic saline. So we're kind of left with isotonic fluids, normal saline, lactate ringers, 
or other balanced salt solutions is our initial choice for resuscitation based on the evidence. And you highlighted a couple of these studies, uh, particularly in the college voices crystalloids that have sort of developed over the years. What, If you are a new practitioner, which of those studies do you think is the most important to read to understand this argument? I think the original SAFE study done in Australia, New Zealand, <clears throat> by their critical care trials group is a landmark study of about 7,000 patients randomized to either albumin or crystalloid in the ICU for fluid management and fluid resuscitation. And it was a terrific study because they actually blinded the uh, fluid infusions. And that uh, study, large number of patients, uh, broad ICU population, showed no difference in outcomes between groups. There was a subgroup that was studied further, and importantly, it was shown that albumin is harmful in patients for as a resuscitation fluid in patients with traumatic brain injury. There was some evidence that maybe albumin was better for sepsis, but follow-up trials did not support that. And the summary of the evidence in the CRYSTAL trial and the ALBIOS trial both show that there's no benefit to using albumin over uh, crystalloids. The, the head of starch discussion is also interesting because despite some studies showing harm, it was a really popular argument to use head of starch for a while for volume expansion. What do you think kept practitioners using it, and do you think that we finally have answered that question about head of starch versus colloids or crystalloids? Well, you know, I never used much head of starch personally, and I didn't see it used a lot in the United States, but it was commonly used for sepsis resuscitation in Europe, from my understanding. And I think that that practice has now stopped because of a couple studies that show harm in the form of renal injury or increased mortality. Dr. Simler, could you help us understand some of the historic context uh, in intravenous isotonic crystalloids and their use in critical illness? Spe- thinking specifically about how it was developed in, for cholera and, and, and some of the other early studies in the 1800s. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is the, the uh, first-line fluid for patients with sepsis. We've just talked about why albumin and, and other semi-synthetic collagen may not be ideal. These fluids have a long history. So basically, uh, 1832, as far as we know, is the first time an IV fluid was administered, and it was administered to a patient with cholera, a series of patients with cholera. Um, and the idea at that time wasn't totally clear. They thought maybe oxygen or oxygenated salts was what was going to be beneficial about it, but the clearly beneficial effect of inpatients with cholera uh, kind of kicked off the idea of intravenous administration of fluid and electrolytes, and actually in those instances bicarbonate. So those first fluids were a balanced crystalloid, although they were hypotonic, more like lactated ringers than saline. And it was not actually until the 1890s that uh, saline, or 0.9% sodium chloride, was added to the armamentarium that researcher Hartog Hamburger invented that solution for use in the laboratory. And it's not totally clear how we went from the original fluid of balanced crystalloids to, by the 1920s or 1930s, the vast majority of isotonic crystalloid being given to patients is this what people called hamburger solution, or we now call saline or normal saline, how that became so popular and how that came to be the predominantly administered fluid, especially in the United States, is not known. And and what about uh, the development of the non-normal saline solutions like lactated ringers? Where where do we trace that back to? 
Yeah, so that's been a, a more iterative process. So the first solution administered by Thomas Lotta in 1832, he has his recipe written for, and it's essentially a dilute version of lactated ringers. It has sodium chloride and bicarbonate equivalent in it, and that was modified by Sidney Ringer and, and Hartman over time to bring us through the kind of non-acetate-containing uh, balanced crystalloids, which were the first generation, and then an attempt to improve the tonicity to be closer to isotonic and, and make other changes. The second generation of those are the acetate-containing balanced crystalloids like plasmalite, normosol, and isolite. And the whole idea of those modifications, obviously, is to make a fluid which has a similar electrolyte and acid-based content to that of human plasma fluid. Uh, and so what you're doing is taking out some of the chloride, that the excess chloride that's in uh, saline, and introducing in its place other anions that are either converted to bicarbonate or rapidly excreted so that you can have a kind of acid-base neutral or at least not generate as much of a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis as you would think about with saline. And and for the, the SMART and the SALT-ED trials, what was the impetus for you and the other investigators to design those trials? Yeah, so we uh, recently conducted those trials, the SMART trial, uh, examining saline versus balanced crystalloids among critically ill adults, the SALT-ED trial, comparing the two among non-critically ill adults, patients treated in the emergency department and then hospitalized outside of an ICU. And our whole rationale was Colin's introduction, which is this is common. IV fluid and specifically the administration of an isotonic crystalloid is the most common intervention received by hospitalized patients. It competes with oxygen for how common it is. We've had both of those fluids for over a century. Every practitioner does it differently. The surgeons and the internists disagree. Europe and the United States disagree. And so this struck us as a really common intervention where any difference between crystalloids would have big population health implications. And the fluids are available and similar in cost, so we felt obligated to try and know which one was better. And when this study was coming out, was there a hypothesis in your mind of which, which solution may be better? Yeah, so there's a, a distinct hypothesis, and what I thought the study would show, those are probably different. The hypothesis of the trial, the reason we did it, was that there was some preliminary data suggesting balanced crystalloids might have a lower rate of acute kidney injury and death. Uh, so that's the formal study hypothesis, and there was some supportive data of that. I'll admit that the data prior to the studies for someone who trained in internal medicine and practiced in an ICU that was a medical ICU that used almost exclusively saline, I was not sure that hypothesis would be proven true. And in fact, if I were betting money, you know, I'd never written a prescription for plasmalite prior to the trial um, and had, had our ICU used saline. So I was not sure that we knew saline caused hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, but I didn't know if that had any consequence for patients, which was the point of the trial. And I know that it was common for our ICU, for the intern specifically, to argue that giving patients with sepsis who already had an elevated lactate, giving them lactated ringers would make it more difficult to interpret the results. What did you and the investigators say to the, the early naysayers when that comment came out? 
Well, there's pretty nice literature from the surgical setting uh, that administering lactated ringers, which does contain a small amount of lactate, may cause these really incremental, very small increases transiently in lactate. But that's not a lactic acidosis, that's sodium lactate, that's the anion, and so that's not uh, problematic, and that's uh, it, the only problem it might cause is a patient in whom you're very closely following lactate levels incremental, less than a millimole per liter increases in lactate. And actually, we don't haven't published this yet, but we're starting to look at the results of the SMART trial with regard to lactate concentrations, and it certainly doesn't look like that was the case there. But of the reasons not to use lactated ringers, I think that's about the weakest. <laughs> so what did you and your investigators find? So the SMART trial amount among the 15,802 critically ill adults who uh, were enrolled in randomized either balanced crystalloids, which was lactated ringers or plasmolite, versus the group that was randomized to saline. That primary outcome, which was composite of death, new dialysis, or persistent renal dysfunction, so leaving the hospital with a creatinine that's twice the baseline, we found that using balanced crystalloids rather than saline resulted in about a 1% lower incidence of that outcome. And in the SALT-ED trial of 13,347 non-critically ill adults, we found the same thing, that using balanced crystalloids resulted in a 1% lower rate of major adverse kidney events to 30 days, that composite outcome. It didn't change hospital-free days. Those were the same in the two groups. And so those, those are the primary results to us of the two trials were that look like uh, using balanced crystalloids, either lactated ringers or plasmolite for the study, resulted in a lower incidence of that composite outcome than saline. And that's a fairly low difference between groups, 1%, but it's a number needed to treat of about 100, and you know, probably 50 million patient, hospitalized patients in the U.S. receive uh, saline currently. So the, the potential implications of even that small difference between groups we think are potentially important. Thank you for uh, already jumping to my follow-up question, which was, what do you say to the people that say a 1% difference is not that important? Well, I'll address that. It's interesting. These studies are so different than the way we're used to thinking about these studies. So we started this study looking for a 1%, 2% difference, right? We, we enrolled almost 16,000 patients because our power calculation at the beginning, we thought, you know, there's not going to be a 20% difference between groups or a 10% difference between groups who've been using these fluids for 100 years. We'd have recognized that or other studies would have shown that. So our, we started this trial with the assumption that 1% to 2% difference in clinical patient-centered outcomes for a really common intervention is something we want to know about. And were there any uh, important subgroups that you all looked at that had differences that the, the listener should know about? Yeah, I think of the pre-specified subgroups that we evaluated, there are probably three things worth mentioning. Balanced crystalloids appeared to be more beneficial than they were in the overall study among patients who got a lot of fluid, patients with a diagnosis of sepsis or septic shock. And then the third subgroup I'll mention is that our study allowed providers to use saline among patients with brain injury, specifically traumatic brain injury, because the balanced crystalloids can be hypotonic. So that's a subgroup that I want to clearly delineate. Our study doesn't inform the safety or efficacy of balanced crystalloids among patients with TBI. But I think it is informative that a subgroup like sepsis, who are kind of a quintessential ICU illness, get lots of fluids, have high risk of AKI and death, and where most of the preliminary work in animal models in the question of balanced crystalloids versus saline were done, that group did appear to be a group that had 
more benefit than the average. Dr. Grissom, in your talk at the Congress, you spoke briefly about the, the change in practice for volume resuscitation. I know that when I was initially training, the, the mantra was give more fluids until they needed to be put on oxygen. What do we know about fluid resuscitation for sepsis in the, the current era? Well, I think starting with the early goal-directed therapy trial, there was uh, more emphasis for early resuscitation, which would be, we would now call a liberal strategy, meaning uh, five to six liters of fluid within the first six hours of resuscitation <clears throat> of septic shock or uh, severe sepsis with hypotension and lactic acidosis. And then uh, with the process arise and promise trials that compared contemporary early goal-directed therapy with contemporary uh, usual care, which I think has changed since the uh, prior to the early goal-directed therapy publication. What those studies showed is that there's no difference in mortality currently between a usual care approach and an early goal-directed therapy approach. What they also demonstrated was that that usual care approach was associated with a lower volume of fluid resuscitation for septic shock in the first six hours as compared to a early goal-directed therapy approach. And if you talk about a more restrictive approach, it's probably two to three liters of fluid with vasopressors added sooner in the more contemporary usual care versus the more traditional early goal-directed therapy, which was five to six liters of fluid. And then the other thing that's brought this to a question where a randomized clinical trial is needed is multiple studies showing an association of increased fluid resuscitation with worse outcomes. And those are all association studies, so we don't yet have the definitive answer for whether that more restrictive approach or the liberal approach is better. And has any of the recent literature changed the way you practice fluid resuscitation in the ICU? Well, um, I, I have to admit that uh, I'm a member of the Pedal Net Network, and so is Dr. Semler, and uh, we're both going to, we're, both of our hospitals are participating in a Pedal Network, that's the Prevention and Early Treatment of Acute Lung Injury Network, sponsored by the NHLBI, and we're both participating in what's called the CLOVERS trial, which is crystalloid liberal or vasopressor early resuscitation in sepsis, and we're testing that question. So at the current time, I think I have equipoise about uh, whether that restrictive approach or the liberal approach, meaning restrictive two to three liters of fluid, vasopressors early versus liberal five to six liters of fluid before starting vasopressors. I, I'm not sure which one of those is better, and so I don't know that I have uh, a definitive way that I practice that leans one way or the other. I have equipoise on that, uh, on that question. So I think what I'm hearing you say is more to come. Yes. <laughs> it'll, it'll take a, a few years to complete this clinical trial, and hopefully we'll have an answer to that question. For both of you, what questions do we not have answers yet, and what future research should we do beyond the forthcoming CLOVERS trial? I'll start with uh, Dr. Schimler just to make it easy. So I think for something as fundamental as the administration of IV fluid, we now realize there's a lot we don't know, 
Um, within, there are two basic questions in fluid management, uh, one of which is fluid choice and one of which is fluid dose. Within fluid choice, I think if balanced crystalloids are better than saline, there's an obvious next question of, well, there are two classes of balanced crystalloid, acetate and non-acetate. Is plasmolite better than lactated ringers, that sort of thing? I think within fluid dose, there's uh, increasing interest in um, what does a fluid bolus really do? Is a fluid bolus improving cardiac output the way we thought it would? Is it damaging the endothelial glycocalyx? So I think an important trial looking at uh, fluid bolus versus infusion. And then the question of when to stop. There's been an incredible outpouring of interest in measures of fluid responsiveness as guides to further fluid administration after the rescue phase. and. Uh, a lot of those are neat tools, and they, a lot of them seem to give you some sense of what will happen to the stroke volume minutes after you've given fluid, but I don't think there's been enough research yet letting us know whether using measures of fluid responsiveness to be the indication for fluid administration improves patient outcomes. So that'd be a couple of things I'd be interested to look at. Dr. Grissom, what about you? What do you think the next steps are for this topic on fluid resuscitation in the ICU? I'll pick up on Dr. Semler's comments about endpoint of resuscitation. I think that is uh, an unanswered question. And as he described, um, there's studies and literature that indicates that dynamic parameters are better indicators of fluid responsiveness than static parameters. So traditional static parameters, uh, central venous pressure and pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, uh, dynamic parameter would be a measurement of change in stroke volume, either with a passive leg raise or with a, a, a small rapid fluid bolus of 500 cc's of uh, isotonic crystalloid. And we have a lot of studies that show effective ways to measure stroke volume or respiratory influence changes in stroke volume that can help us determine if a patient is fluid responsive. But I think the, the unanswered question is how do application of these uh, uh, tests of fluid responsiveness influence outcome in uh, patients who are in shock and in particular patients with septic shock? Thank you all both very much for uh, this conversation and for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org forward slash care for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Kyle Enfield. This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. At Baxter, we understand that patients with acute kidney injury require therapy options different from those of patients with chronic kidney disease. That's why every piece of the PrismaFlex system has been designed with safety and flexibility in mind. From the highly accurate fluid management to the automated functionality to the ease in switching between CRRT therapies. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Kyle Enfield, MD, is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. 
In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.